0: My guest today is someone whose work I've followed for many years. He has been single-handedly responsible for assuring people that just because uh, you're an anarchist doesn't mean you're not debonair and doesn't mean you don't own a bow tie. Uh, his uh, explanation of things to do with liberty is always refreshing, and it carries with it a gentleness that makes them stand out in uh, even in that particular area of thought. So uh, uh, I'm, wel- I'm welcoming today Geoffrey Tucker, President of the Brownstone Institute. Geoffrey, welcome. Uh,
1: thank you. It's so nice to be here.
0: I'd like to start with with the Brownstone Institute because this was a, a response, as I understand it, to COVID and the COVID lockdown and the COVID tyranny and the COVID lies. And this is something that's very dear to the heart of the UK column and our, and our audience because this, this is what gave us a huge impetus and a huge, a huge growth. Because we started to uh, explore this and we found, uh, we found the state narrative, utterly unsound. But it was enforced with such arrogance and such power and such authoritarianism. And we recognised what we were dealing with as deeply unsettling, deeply evil, and and um, deeply deceptive. So our pushback, perhaps like yours, became very fact based. It became very much looking at the stats, looking at the information and questioning the narrative. Now, uh, very quickly we became aware of the Brownstone Institute and the excellent material you're publishing on, not just on COVID, but in a wide range of things. Um, Could you take us through, you know, why you set up the Brownstone Institute and, and, and what you're looking to achieve?
1: The lockdowns were a real change in the matrix, in many ways. It was a, a shift in world history. I would think something like the equivalent of how I imagine World War One was for that generation. Something that was completely unexpected, far more brutal, uh, far more vast than we ever knew, and it unleashed all sorts of forces and devils uh, that we didn't we thought were long ago put away. And for me, intellectually, it was a shock. Um, You know, I I had been writing about pandemic responses for about 15 years, so I knew that this this cockamamie idea of lockdowns in the event of a pandemic was out there, and I had written about this a a lot over the previous 15 years. In fact, my first book uh, called Bourbon for Breakfast has a, a chapter on pandemic responses. But it's one thing to know intellectually something like that is possible. It's like knowing nuclear war is possible, but you you still don't expect it so when uh when the pandemic response began, which in to my mind uh it really began on March eighth in the u s but it was foretold about um ten days earlier with an interview in The New York Times for the New York Times, it contradicted a hundred years of public health advice by advocating panic, I, I knew that something had changed and and I knew that, that the world would never be the same and that I would never be the same. Uh, so uh, f- speaking uh, from an intellectual point of view, I had become burrowed down uh, progressively uh, over many years in a kind of, I guess I would call it, maybe techno-utopianism. I really had come to believe that the advent of digital media would lead to an information explosion and this information explosion would uh, cause uh, the public to be ever more educated about the merits of liberty and the the rise of uh, big tech. We would have a new generation of entrepreneurs who uh, would fall in love with the market and with the idea of human rights and human liberty and free speech and so on. So I had made exactly the same mistake that many Victorian liberals had in the 1880s and 1890s which was uh believing somehow that our victory was inevitable. Uh, the problem with that perspective is that you tend to see the world uh, uh through this intellectual constructs that you've built for yourself. And uh, so you know, I I had um you said, you know, well, I, I, would, I was was uh, excessively optimistic, I would say, and ignoring, you know, actual threats all around us, and which appalls me. I mean, that my one job in this world is is to make good calls, you know, and to to understand the world around me. I mean, that's that's what I do, and so I had completely failed, and it was in light of this failure. That I decided to kind of reboot, and uh, the reason I started Brownstone was because uh, I wanted to focus on this dramatic historical shift and everything that would represent. Yeah, I knew from the very beginning that this would lead to enormous economic, cultural, and political fallout that would last. Basically, I knew for for as long as I'm on this earth. I mean, it was that kind of change, and. So I, I wanted an institute that would grapple with this, understand what happened, and provide some guidance on the way out of it as, as best I possibly can, and that's that was the purpose of Brownstone. I didn't see any other institution set up uh, with capable of doing capability of doing that, and that's why Brownstone doesn't have a specific um, ideological uh, framework. It doesn't have uh, a, a limit. Uh, in the types of topics we talk about, and nor do we have a set, you know, dogmatic agenda. I, I, I want it to be objective, as you said in your opening. You became very fact based, and so I want to be fact based. I don't want to. So there are two kinds of errors. I want to repeat the kind of error that led to lockdowns for the world, but I also want—I don't want to repeat the error that I myself personally made, which was, uh, you, you know, believing optimistically in the inevitable triumph of of my ideas and thereby causing me to neglect uh, all the threats around me so so it was for me a, a kind of a, an awakening i understand what you mean about the the, the throwing away of
0: a, of 100 years of of, of uh, medical practice i actually put this to a, a a consultant in the the nhs in britain i said you're watching what you do and it was very very odd because uh, you've spent hundred, hundred fifty 150 years understanding how best to deal with sick people, right? how best to prepare them for an operation, how best to re- have them recover from an operation, how how to do each little part of it a little bit better, a little bit better, until you get to the best practice you can. And COVID came along, I said, from what I stand, you, you panicked and threw it all away. And you started to make it up on the hoof because this was just... So different, so scary. This nothing was good enough, and he, and he basically said, "Yeah, we, we did we did rather do that. That's true." And uh, panic is the right word. You used that.
1: I don't think we understood the capability of. Well, let me just say this. I thought the human experience was was very good at incorporating uh, past knowledge. And, and bringing it towards the future in ever better ways you know and that, that proved not to be true in very specific uh, ways about which we can speak Yes well let's let's
0: let's get back to that in just a moment because I'd like to explore the liberalism point that you made because um I'll, I'll quote from your uh, in brownstone Institute website uh you say the name brownstone originates from a malleable long-lasting building stone also known as freestone uh, used so commonly in 19th century American cities, preferred for its beauty, practicality, and strength. Brownstone Institute regards the great task of our times as rebuilding the foundations of liberalism, as classically understood, including core values of human rights, and freedom as non-negotiables for an enlightened society.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So my question is, what happened? What went wrong to those principles? Because those principles were dominant at one point, they were dominant in the British Empire, they were dominant in America, they were dominant across Europe Um, and then all of a sudden they weren't and they were historic and they were an artefact of the past and they were swept away. Um, And to rebuild them, I understand why you would want to do that. Um, what's, What's the analysis of why it needs rebuilt? Why did it collapse?
1: Our ancestors always told us that it, that the idea of, of human rights and, and freedom need to be uh, taught in every generation. Um, and I've read that line for you know my whole life, from Thomas Jefferson to I don't know Cicero to Lord Acton, you know. But but. Uh, that's a, it's an interesting point because it means that, that society has to have a cognition of what it is doing, uh, it, the, the purposes. Uh, you know, that, that freedom has to be the primary end of politics, as Lord Acton said. And that we have to understand this, and, and when we forget that, then the foundations become very vulnerable. And clearly, I mean, I, there's no dispute about this, uh, by 2020, something had gone out of those foundations. I had been chronicling this for years, but I never really believed that the sort of cultural and intellectual loss of uh, an appreciation for what freedom is and how it works and why it's important would have such a practical impact on the world. But it it did. I mean, when the lockdowns came, uh, at least in the U.S. experience, uh, I I was was screaming. You know, I couldn't believe this was actually happening. I mean, March 8th, this conference called South by Southwest in Austin, Texas was canceled by the mayor. This is a conference that involved 250,000 people and their their plane tickets are shredded, you know, all their expenses, the hotel reservations, all the expenses associated with exhibitors were canceled. It was all just banned, you know, by executive edict by the mayor. And I I watched that unfold. This is before the generalized lockdown, so it's just a local lockdown. I saw this unfold and I thought, well, this is this is a scandal for the ages. We're going to see a decade of lawsuits. Uh, that we're never going to get over this. And I wrote an article about it, and to my astonishment, uh, I had the only article that I saw in the entire American press about this. Really, the entire world, <laughs> and I—we th- had a vast libertarian army, you know, uh, all over the U.S. And, and and the world that would that would come, you know, come out uh, guns ablazing and criticizing this, but. Instead, what we saw was was complete silence. Not just on the part of uh, the libertarian intellectuals in general, especially the libertarians, who went silent. But the general public—it was, it was like the fears overcame all principled attach, attachments to all the things what I thought we had a consensus on. So I was completely wrong. Uh, that consensus uh, seems to have disappeared. Um, and and. You know, I I don't know why. I think we just stopped teaching it. We stopped appreciating it. Uh, We were surrounded by the blessings and prosperity and uh, became uh, spoiled and thought it was just sort of baked into our lives that we would always have human rights and freedom and all all the blessings of liberty, even if we never fought fought for it. The other thing is that I, you know, there were terrible academic trends that were taking over the academy for. Really, decades prior to 2020, but I had convinced myself that this would never leak out into real life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the deconstructionists and the the wackadoodles on campus, you know, and their and their uh, vicious worldview would never would never amount to anything. But I was wrong about that too. So there's a number of reasons, and and we developed a kind of a Zoom class, uh, ruling class uh, in the U.S. and and in the U.K. and around the world. Th- that that benefited enormously from the low interest rates for the pre previous 15 years and they they developed a kind of a lifestyle of, of- Six digit salaries with no work to do. And then they, we had the technologies for them to work at home. And basically, they just said, screw society, screw human rights, forget freedom, you know, make the working class serve me. And I'm just going to sit at home and uh, pretend to work. And then you, you pay me lots of money. And that's the way life's uh, supposed to be. So, so that, that drove a lot of why, why, why nobody really cared. I mean, and this is true even of, Libertarian intellectuals, you know, they were they were thrilled. It's like, well, I'm special. I don't want to get infected, so I'm just going to sit at home and uh, enjoy my my high salaries. I mean, there are libertarian organizations that bragged about how they shut down their offices and they were sitting all sitting at home on their laptops, and they were they were they thought that was morally virtuous. You know, I'll just order my groceries online, have some schlub bring it to me, and drop it off of my front door. You know, <laughs> i let them get the virus. I'll stay safe. So there was a kind of a development of a, of a caste system that fed into the lockdowns, too.
0: I like the fact that that uh, little quote I gave from your website, it talks about core values. And this is, this is what was lost, because we were in a society that we were always being told was neoliberal, right? We had, we had rolled back the, the waves of communism. We had mm-hmm. fought off socialism. We'd fought off totalitarianism. Liberalism had triumphed, mm-hmm. and... Mm-hmm. And, and that wasn't entirely false, because if you look at the plummeting levels of poverty in the world, that was clearly associated with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the liberalisation of China and, 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 and uh, the Pacific and Eastern Europe and indeed Russia. And there was, there was certainly benefits. And we've been told that the ideas of liberalism, free trade, Okay, maybe it wasn't all that free, but it was free air trade, um, free markets, free air markets, for sure, that these had triumphed. And that, again, is not wholly a lie, but the underlying ideas, the core values that society had were clearly miles from this. So we had the appearance of some sort of liberalism, but there there was no heart to it, there was no there was no substance to it. When in the, the city that gave birth to the Enlightenment, Edinburgh, when the lockdown came, there was a protest was called. I I'm not saying it was necessarily just one man. Um there might have been there might have been a handful there, but it was pretty much one man turned up. It was Professor Richard Enos, and he was on his own, and he was obviously attacked by his university for being there. And the BBC sent a a, a cameraman to to kind of catch this terrible um violator of the rules and of course the cameraman said you know quietly to him I'm right with with you I think what you're saying is fantastic but we can't show that on the BBC we've got to get something that makes you look silly All right so they were sent down to uh take him down All right and there was a, there was a Strange fear that went through the, almost the whole of society, and the number of people in the early days who would stand up and say no were very small. And then slowly it grew, one by one, people kind of refound their courage, and they started to share ideas, and they started to become less afraid. The same before we went live, we, the, the UK Column team went to a, a march in London. There was easily three quarters of a million people there. No mainstream media. But three quarters of a million people on the street saying no to lockdown. So eventually it got very, the pushback became huge. But the marches themselves were very interesting because people would go along and um, they'd go along in ones and twos. They'd go along in small groups. Often they went along on their own. And they, what they got from the march wasn't that they were protesting or being able to bring a message to those in power, what they got was a morale boost because, hey, hey I'm not alone. Because in their office, in their society, in their family, often they were. I, and I was, I was speaking to uh, one of the uh, leaders of the movement against the woke in Scotland uh, who's fighting against educational reforms which are indoctrination uh, for children, not education. Um, and they started a movement to push back against this. And initially they thought they were being kind of set up by the opposition because when they were selling tickets, they were always going in ones. People weren't going and buying three and four. It was single tickets, but hugely disproportionately. And they thought, well, what is is this, is this an algorithm? Is something you'll buy up upper tickets so that no one turns up? But it wasn't that at all. It was people who were resisting and they were on their own, in their own little sliver of society and they had to go out to find someone who actually thought the same way. So this this grew slowly through the lockdown. Um, I don't think that it's small now. I mean, what's your sense of this? Has something, you talked about this being a, a, a World War I level sea change in society. Um, do you see this as having a um, awoken um, a much more Independent spirit in our in our people, or at least in a sizable part of them,
1: it has, but it's not enough. We're, we're nowhere near getting uh, to the place we need to be. Uh, we're these are all rearguard actions so far. I mean, what we're seeing right now should have existed uh, more than three years ago, and and so we're very late to the game um, and to to realize the the level of the hegemon. I mean, just one one point that we are only now fully becoming aware of, is uh, the unity of media, uh, big tech, and government in uh, sort of marching in lock lockstep. So that was something that I didn't know had happened, but you know, basically, media and big tech had been, in effect, nationalized or corporatized over the many years prior to lockdowns, and I didn't, I didn't know that was happening. So, you know, we're becoming aware of these things. But my concern is that, um, and and it's true we've we've seen some victories, right? We've we've seen the victories in in rollback of uh, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and that sort of thing. Um, they were supposed to, have, they wanted to implement all that stuff. Um, It didn't really work. The problem is what we see as victories, uh, they, the hegemon, sees as temporary setbacks, temporary inevitable setbacks. So their plan is just to wait it out and then ramp it up again and change the topics. That's why we're seeing all the hysteria about climate change, right? I mean, it's all just like right on cue. Um, So to keep us disoriented, but to, you know, prepare for another lockdown, another emergency. So I, I, while on one hand, I'm very happy about the progress we've made, but we're nowhere near uh, getting to the point that we need to be. Also, all of our channels of communication continue to be very vulnerable. Um, YouTube is still taking down uh, videos every day that are, are talking about these subjects. They they. They're continuing to censor. We've got major lawsuits in the United States right now. It's probably going to be settled by the Supreme Court, uh, dealing with whether and to what extent government can actually, you know, co- cooperate. Um, can uh, you know cooperate with big tech in censoring and media and censoring uh, citizens' voices? And the answer seems to be absolutely not. And it seems like the case is going to go away. But what's strange is even while the case is being litigated and. The discovery is finding all sorts of evidence of all this stuff, and more and more every day. Even while this is taking place, uh, big tech and media continue to work directly with government agencies to censor. So we've we got the the very thing that the litigation is seeking to stop is continuing on with absolutely no uh, change whatsoever. Uh, so they're clearly not intimidated by this. So uh, it's going to take. Some profound efforts uh, to stop this, and I, I'm I'm with you. I'm 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 thrilled that we now have an awakened global movement. But I just don't I don't know yet whether it's it's capable of stopping this. Uh, I wish this had happened three years ago, because uh, the the problems we're trying to defeat have advanced in very mighty ways, and we haven't really seen a mechanism in place to, to, uh, to stop it. The state direction of, of media
0: was a, was a thing to behold, because we yeah. found that not only, you know, particularly during lockdown, not only were all the media organizations getting government bailout money, um, but almost all of their advertising, so all the print media, the, the independent print media in the UK, almost all of their advertising was government advertising. There was huge amounts regarding COVID itself. And then there was huge amounts for recruitment ads for people. So it it got to a point where they were so financially dependent on the state to have a different line, to actually say the lockdowns are harmful, you know. And then the phone would go and presumably the conversation would go something like, are you sure you want to take this line? It's very brave of you, but I'm not sure how this is going to affect, you know, how we place advertising, because we couldn't really be seen to support that message. I'm sure you, it's not censorship, you understand, I'm sure you understand our position, so maybe could you have another look at that? Would a call like that not take place? I suspect it would, because what we saw was no opposition. And, and this is one of the dangers, because it is possible that there's a tipping point, and Britain, Scotland's worse worse than this than America. How much of this how much of the total economy has to be run by the state before the economic power that imparts to the state is so overwhelming that resistance other than by the determined principled few becomes very hard. And as long as the economic power lasts, the power lasts. Is, is, is there something in that? Is, is what we're seeing the... Um, we've, we've thrown off communism because communism failed economically. It made people poor. The officials understand that under communism, officials were poor. So communism was swept away. And we've got something else in its place and, hate they're not poor anymore. And that has brought the something else, uh, an ability to dictate... That even the dictators of the past didn't have.
1: Yeah, it's it. It really is true. Uh, the c- communism was a kind of a, a wild experiment and a and a wacky idea. Uh, the corporatism that we're seeing rise in the in the West today is not so much an experiment, but a codification of a of a of a growing consolidation of industry, government, and media. So, um, so they they it's and yes, you're right. It'll stop progress, but but it's not going to bring poverty to the ruling, ruling class. The ruling class is doing just fine. I mean, there was a huge transfer of wealth that took place over three and a half years, trillions and trillions of dollars sucked away from the middle class and uh, transferred to the ruling class. Um, and it was done through t- t- tremendous amounts of of economic fakery. Uh, in the U.S., there were these stimulus payments. The, just out of nowhere, government started dropping thousands of dollars into, into people's bank accounts to, to pay them to stay locked down, and people celebrated. Like, well, this is very interesting. I've been paying the government all my life. Now the government's giving me free money. This is this is doesn't get any better than this. But of course, you know, w- w- within a year, uh, uh, the inflation started, and, and the inflation is, has uh, in the in the case of the U.S. The U.S. dollar, in three years, uh, robbed. Every dollar of seventeen cents. I mean, that's how severe it's been. Well, that more than takes away uh, all the value of the stimulus payments themselves. So, if you look at uh, a real disposable income, it's been flat uh, over 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 four years, and that's. So the stimulus didn't give anybody money. It was just a, a a bribe, you know? And then the government just took it away. It was one of the great head fakes in, in history. And I still don't understand, I write about this all the time, but I, you know, I still don't understand why people are not aware of it. Uh, which raises another point, that that is a serious problem for us. And we talk about, you know, an awakened movement and, you know, the re- minority that's resisting, that sort of thing. but. There, there are other major problems. The, the biggest problem we face right now is population uh, demoralization, uh, drug, drug addiction, ill health, and uh, you know, mass disorientation. So it's, it's not clear whether you know, the masses of people are really ready to resist anymore. They're not really in a position. They're just still trying to put their lives together again after lockdowns. Uh, the the amount of vaccine injury, the amount of uh, in the US people put on an average of uh, of um, twenty five pounds, you know, during lockdowns. Uh, the amount of overdoses and suicides. So the 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 population in general has been completely uh, abused, and and the amount of learning loss that took place over the two years with the schools uh, being shut down. Uh, is enormous. I mean, we're seeing the IQ levels of a, of, of a whole generation that's just sinking. Uh, people can't read, they can't do math, uh, they're unaware of literature. So, this, this is, the, the problems we're facing are immense, way larger than just uh, something like a, a simple perspective from the past could solve. And, and what that transition looks like between where we are today and the start of a new renaissance um, is still unclear. You know, how do we get from here to there? I just don't know. But it's it feels like like an intellectual war, um, but it's also a real war because there are many many people on the other side where we stand on this stuff. And you'll notice, in neither the UK nor the US, have we seen any real frank, uh, you know, honest apologies for what's happened, and that's for a reason because they're not sorry. They have every intention of doing it again. It's the best thing that ever happened to them. So this is what we're dealing with. It's profound. I I don't mean to, you know, uh, uh, cast gloom here, because I think we, we this can be defeated. But it's not going to be defeated. It's not our victory is not inevitable. I guess that's that's my point. The, the presumption of inevitability is where we went wrong. At least that's where I went wrong. And you're right, I was a child of the Cold War. You know, when the end of history was announced in 1990, you know, I thought it was true, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't true. <laughs> it turns out history didn't end. History just moved along in its plodding ways exactly as uh, it had in the past. So we have a job to do, and it's a terrifying one.
0: History moves along in plodding ways, but you're, how, how do you go how do you go bankrupt? Very gradually and then very quickly. You know, history moved like that, because I'd I looked at, I grew up like you uh, during the Cold War, and I looked at this political, geopolitical situation, where everything was locked down. It was frozen in a moment, and that moment was 1947, and nothing had really changed. And when I was going through my formative years, it looked like nothing ever would change. And then all of a sudden, it, all, it was all swept away. In, in, in one summer, um, when a few Germans started to get out through Hungary, and the whole lot just fell apart. And um, it's only organisations like the Mises Institute and what have you been discussing fee and what have you, discussing why. Because you had a society based wholly on fear, and when Gorbachev announced that they weren't going to do fear anymore... Everything collapsed, and and that kind of simple analysis, but that actually sees through to what's happening. There, there must be an equivalent for that for us because we we look at this society and it and it doesn't make it doesn't make around it doesn't make sense. It's not rational. It's not reasonable. It's not reasoned. It's not precise. It's not scientific. It's not it's not anything. It's got this strange belief system, and if you just believe enough and you comply enough, everything will be fine. But everything's not fine. Well, that 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 must have an end. And to be in a position where you are doing what the Brownstone Institute is doing, which is putting out analysis, thoughtful, carefully, carefully reasoned explanations of what reality is. This can have a huge effect. It's not the sort of effect that uh, the hegemon might fear. But, well, maybe it is, because one of the things we were talking on, on the news programme that we run on a regular basis, we are talking on Monday about a number of things um, where you had different aspects of the hegemon and they were coming up, what's the big problem? So the Club of Rome, the biggest problem we face is the ability of the of the population to tell the difference between fact and fiction, right? What they're saying is we are terrified of not being able to carry the narrative. When they mean fact from fiction, they're reversing it. They mean fiction from fact, right? They are terrified of not being able to win the narrative war, and we're seeing the same thing coming out of the UN. What's you know they've got uh, their twelve or whatever it is twelve. Uh, Uh, plans for their summit 2024. One of them is all about media and information and controlling the narrative. And when they're talking about this, this is about third on the list. It's right up near the top. What are the problems we face? Controlling ideas. And what the Brownstone Institute is doing is putting out ideas. What we're trying to do is put out ideas. And I actually think the hegemon is genuinely worried by that because it does rely on the ideas being suppressed and they have to keep suppressing them because you can have hope floats kind of thing you know if you've got a a viewpoint that says well actually we can we can organize ourselves we don't need the government to be doing everything for us we don't need handouts we can work for ourselves we can take care of those who can't we can that sort of idea that there's an option there's an alternative to this kind of strange semi-slavery that we all seem to be expected to enjoy. The idea that there are other ways of looking at the world, the idea that there are other ways of analysing the problems, I think really worries the, the, the powers that shouldn't be um, and th- can be tremendously effective. It worked in terms of the communism, which came down because the ideas ultimately failed. can work again. And one of the things that I saw quite early during the, the battle the war over COVID and it was a, it was a war. it felt like a war. Quite early on, I mean a good 18 months before lockdowns ended and that everything was was stopped, I was I was looking at what was coming out and I said they've lost the narrative. They've lost the argument. masking, social distancing, vaccine effects, vaccine safe and effective, the, the threat that the, the, the COVID nineteen posed in the first place, all of it, they've mm-hmm. lost the arguments. They've lost the narrative. They've lost. It's now only a matter of time to close all the COVID stuff down. And it took I mean, it took another eighteen months before we got the we got shot of the the, the, the the last of it. But they had lost the argument, and and I think that's no small thing that weakened. Too small and too late and too pathetic, though the opposition was.
1: We still won the argument. Right, and partially we we won it because it it had failed so badly. So uh, let's just kind of review very quickly what what was the plan? I mean. We've, we've heard a lot of flim flam you know for for many years now about all this stuff uh that the purpose of lockdowns was to make the virus go away make it scared and you know eradicate or something. I don't know it's not clear what the purpose of lockdowns were and then we had this you know this wild uh spreading of germophobia throughout the population will get near me and by the way it's still going on in the US I mean there was somebody I was at a store um, I guess two days ago and and a lady with an n95 uh, mask was hopping around avoiding me and in the meat section, <laughs> are you still trying to avoid COVID even now? You know say no, everybody got it. But, but uh, as best I can tell, the the idea was initially that uh, there was a new virus and that they would terrify the population, even though we knew the infection fatality rate was was extremely low and was focused on the elderly and infirm. We knew this. But they thought they would terrify the entire population. And then they would de- deploy their magic uh, potion. So you lock everybody down. You uh, reveal the magic uh, potion, make everybody get it. They're protected from the evil uh, germ. The whole population is deeply grateful and celebrates the glories of of, of pharma and government. And the media, and big tech, and and then we give them all power, and and out of which they create vaccine passports. Because God knows, look, we got fixed up and and by, by the inoculations, and now and now we'll defer to you, no matter what you say. So now, government and pharma and media and big tech, they have all power. Now they can implement their global vaccine passports, and we have you know health police, you know everywhere and we all just line up periodically for our inoculations from the government. So I think that was the plan. So you know the question is where did it go wrong and I think I think where the plan went wrong was that the vaccines didn't work. I mean it's it's an amazing an amazing level of failure and the incredible thing about this is that when the lockdowns happened and people started talking about vaccine I just laughed because you know, I had read you know textbooks on virology and immunology and epidemiology. I understand how these viruses work. I know that there are some viruses that are stable, like polio and measles and rubella or whatever. And there are some some uh, pathogens that are that are constantly on the move. They're, they have many changes of clothes. They can go to the wardrobe and pull down a new dress, a new suit any day of the week, and and those kind of p- pathogens. Uh, there's never been any successful attempt to. There's never been a successful vaccine against them, and we know this. And we've we've had many years of experience with the flu vaccine. The typical seasonal flus are far more stable than something like a coronavirus. You know, Uh, but even those, I mean, they're variously twenty percent, thirty percent effective, and sometimes ten percent, sometimes forty percent. But but it's a guessing game. You know, one year to the next, what. The flu vaccine is going to be, I knew for sure there was no way they were going to be able to defeat a coronavirus and end this pandemic, if there was a pandemic, uh, through vaccination. So if I knew that, and I'm hardly a specialist, I, I find it just amazing. That, that governments and pharma and a ruling class in general believed that this cockamamie scheme could ever work. Well, it didn't work. It just it failed. It was a most immense failure uh, of, I mean, it's a, it's a failure on the level of the failure of communism, you know? I mean, it's, it was a, a complete disaster. So now faced with this failure, you've got a problem. You can admit it and say, okay, We lied, we were wrong, we're stupid, we're not experts, we flopped, we ruined your life for nothing. They could say that, but they're not gonna say that. They never say that. So now we're in this kind of long period of pretend. We have to pretend as if they did the right thing and that there's some good to come out of it, but you're right. Uh, These days, nobody believes this anymore. So we're in this kind of strange moment uh, in which uh, the, the you know in which this the ruling class that did this to us continues to pretend as if all is fine but actually not all is fine the world's on fire and and they have lost all credibility i mean you see, i was looking at a poll this morning about the collapse in trust in the governments and media and medicine in um and uh big business and churches that went along with the lockdowns. And so like every institution in society has, has got lo- major institution in society, there's a mass loss of trust in everyone who participated in this. So I, I don't know how this ends, but I agree with you that this is not sustainable and And the best way that we can combat it is by working in the world of ideas, which is why the censorship is so intense right now. they're trying to keep our message uh, from getting out, and they're attacking us in many other ways. I mean Brownstone's are under attack every single day. Uh, uh, and people try to fact check us, it discredited us, uh, b- block us. I mean, we've had to build huge machinery in place to keep us from being cancelled. It's it's quite a struggle. The change in people
0: is is quite striking, on the change in their, their their willingness to believe the narrative. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, British um, Twitter account. Uh, called Doctor Doctor McHonk Honk which is a man with a, with, with dressed up as a clown uh, digitally you know, dressed up as a clown and, and he's the doctor and there's another chap dressed up as a monkey and he's the patient and it's the interaction between the two and it's very good stuff it's very funny and it's very hard hitting um, and there were the one that came out just recently, the doctor was complaining about no one's believing us anymore. And he listed all of the things that the state is trying to push from the Ukraine war to global boiling to whatever. There's a range of them. And all of the deniers that are not buying this. Says, the, more we, the more we push it, the fewer people we believe. who believe us. And th- this, is, this is correct. Right? The, the word expert has actually been devalued. Right, Expert now means person who lies for money. And it's been devalu- devalued in the public's eyes to an incredible degree. And this has got to be replaced with something, right? Because it's the void now, right? So the challenge is that we, we get people to think and analyze themselves and, and, and trust their God-given ability to think and reason and ask questions. And listen to other people's questions, and have something that's more vibrant, more. If you want to say, you know, 16th, 17th century Edinburgh review about it, which I think the Brownstone in publication is. Um, this 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 will make this will make headway. I, I I'd like just to, to, to finish off with it, just to go a little bit into your past because say I've been following your work for a long time, and I I understand that even before I was watching what you were doing, you were working with Ron Paul. Um, I wonder if you could just share a, a few thoughts on on those days and, and with the Mises Institute, with our audience, be, before we go about the sort of work that they were doing and uh, and, and what you got from from those
1: associations. Well, you know, uh, when I was in college, I uh, was... Uh, uh, but. My first two years of college were kind of a waste for me because i I had a full-time job and another part-time job. I was a musician in a band, and my full-time job was managing a men's store and that sort of thing. I, in my studies I paid no attention to them. but by finally in my second my third and fourth year, I transferred college as much a small college and at some Professors were good mentors to me, and I and I didn't have to work. And I spent all my time in the library reading anything and everything. And I got enraptured with you know just generally the world of ideas. And I didn't really have a you know um, a fixed position on anything, which is good when you're a student. You shouldn't. Um, but that Ron <laughs> Ron Paul was running, I think, for for president. Actually, it was. And this is really early on. And I was just intrigued about the clarity of his thinking and how different he sounded from everybody else. And I thought, you know, that's kind of cool. And I kind of want to I kind of want to believe what he believes. So I started writing papers on the gold standard and uh, this kind of stuff. So I went off to journalism school afterwards and then uh, Ron Tapped me through several layers of friends uh, to be his research assistant, which was you know a wonderful time for me. And I spent all my time you know running monetary figures, just doing everything I loved, using my economics training, uh, working for Ron. And it was he's he's a great man. He, he by the way he he was fantastic on COVID from the very beginning. Actually, he was one of the very few voices. And he boy did he get slammed. Um, but uh, when I was in Washington. Um, I bumped into the Mises Institute. I I had already read, you know, I guess five books by Mises by this time, so to to discover that there was a Mises Institute. And don't forget, this is long before the internet existed, so it was hard to find out anything. Um, I walked in and and uh, started volunteering, and and eventually I I stayed at the Mises Institute for for uh, twenty five years actually, um, and had a you know. The publishing program and took it into the internet age and so on and really uh, really uh, learned a lot there and then and then moved on from there to private company with financial company and publishing and fee with publishing and and AIR with publishing so it's been a, a sort of a long road for me but you know as I look back on the course of my life and my many books that I've written and many things I've done I feel like Everything that's ever happened to me uh, prepared me for what I'm doing right now. I write every day for the Epoch Times, every day, and then also run Brownstone. And so, so every skill I've ever developed over the course of my life, I'm deploying right now in the best way I know how. And I feel like I'm—I've made myself finally very, very useful in the greatest crisis of our lifetimes. So I'm, I feel a great deal of gratitude uh, for uh, my long experience in this, in these industries, in the world of ideas, and uh, I hope to continue. I hope using whatever skills I have in a uh, responsible and effective, uh, effective way. I don't want to look back as Mises did when he was six years old, uh, coming over on a boat from Geneva, uh, to the United States, uh, coming to a country where he d- didn't really speak the language, he had uh, no money, and he'd left all of his papers and books in um, Austria, where they were confiscated, first by the Nazis and then by the communists. Uh, and he wrote in his memoirs, he wrote his memoirs as if he was at the end of his life, and he said, I set out to be a reformer. And only became a historian of decline. So, so I think about that that line a lot, and um, I f- I, d- I don't want to be a historian of decline. Um, I do feel the need to chronicle the disasters of our times and lay them out and explain them. But I hope to do so in a way that inspires. Um, a restoration of freedom and a new appreciation of human rights and a restructuring of the social and political order in a way that that returns power uh, to the people. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that looks like. I'm not entirely confident we can win this, but I agree with you that battling it out in the world of ideas um, stands the greatest hope of success. I'd rather have the power of ideas on my side than all the armaments in the world because ideas have a magical ability to spread, um, To uh, they're malleable, uh, they're free. <laughs> and so I think, I think we're going about this the best possible way. Um, in any case, I'm not willing to accept defeat. I'm ready to battle it out and that's what we do every single day. And I appreciate having you as a colleague in this great effort. Sometimes when
0: uh, I'm asked, you know, why, why to do this, I, I, I point to the um, great Scottish hero, Robert Bruce. And he said, you never, you, you never uh, declare peace with the English. You can have a temporary truce, but you never make peace. Hmm. And the reason he said that was, if you make peace within a generation, you'll lose the ability to resist. And why do you fight all of these evils we've talked about? You fight them in order to maintain the ability to resist. Because that that alone, that's enough. Because in that there's hope. In that there's always a way forward. And if we become too comfortable, uh, then all of a a sudden great things can be taken from us. And... uh, I think being in the fight, being in the battle of ideas and not being too comfortable and not being too confident and being realistic about the challenges is a great place to be. And uh, I want to thank you very much, Geoffrey, for your time today. Have you anything you'd like to say just before
1: we go? Uh, No, apart from uh, appreciate your interviewing style, letting me talk, and uh, asking me some really interesting questions and allowing me to reflect a little bit on the the bigger pictures. It's been really gratifying, so I I appreciate it very much.
0: Jeffrey Tucker, thank you very much. Till next time, I hope. Goodbye.